You're listening to episode 142 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? Before we jump into intros, I wanted to say a heartfelt thank you to Scrivener for being a champion of 88 Cups of Tea and sponsoring today's episode. Scrivener is a writing software that is regularly used by new writers and New York Times bestselling authors alike. Many of our own podcast guests and listeners are loyal fans of Scrivener. If you haven't tried them out yet, they're giving our storytellers a special 20% discount by using the code 88 Cups of Tea at checkout. I'm excited to tell you more about them, so be sure to keep an ear out at the end of the show. We're also getting closer and closer to the start of our competition for awesome giveaway prizes to continue our three-year anniversary festivities and, hint, hint, the launch of something really awesome for our community, so be sure to look out for those announcements on social media. Before I introduce today's guest, I wanted to thank Kate Meals for taking the time to rate our show five stars and taking even more time to leave the following incredible review. She wrote, life-changing. I found 88 Cups of Tea at a time when I had almost let my lifelong dream of writing young adult novels slip from my grasp. Feeling frustrated about a recent change from a five-minute to a -a one-and-a-half-hour commute to work, I just couldn't imagine having the time or energy to pursue my writing. I was starting to think the closest I could get would be listening to my favorite writers be interviewed about their work. So I looked up writing podcasts to keep me entertained on my commute and started listening to 88 Cups of Tea. After listening to several episodes on that first day, I was so inspired that I came home and wrote an entire chapter of a novel I've been half-heartedly trying to write for 10 years. I now knew without a doubt that not only was it possible to find the time to write, I was going to finish my book. I have read tons of craft books and talked about the book I would someday write for years and years, but I had barely made any actual progress. 88 Cups of Tea is the only thing that helped get over whatever mental and emotional blocks have prevented me from actually sitting down and typing. I feel so motivated and renewed by every single episode. The host, Yin Cheng, does an outstanding job asking authors the very questions aspiring writers need answered. She manages to get deep into the author's motivations, struggles, emotions, and process in a way that feels natural, friendly, and honest. Her interviews elicit information that makes me feel like I am truly capable of becoming the author I have always wanted to be. Thank you for shining so much light into the world, Yin. I can hear in your voice how much you love stories, books, authors, and inspiring us all to bring our creative work to life. This podcast has helped me move closer to achieving my most heartfelt dream. I am eternally grateful to now be writing daily. Uh, Kate, you are just incredible. I am so touched you took so much time to write. Thank you so much for sharing all of that and especially about the project that you've been stuck and trying to work on for 10 years. You have no idea how much that means to me that listening to 88 Cups of Tea has impacted you in a way that would help you move past that writing block. That is such a big deal to me. So truly, Thank you for making me feel like the work that I do matters. And I am so proud of you for coming around and sitting down and getting the words out. 
That's incredible. And I'm excited for you to get your story out to the world. Storytellers, if you haven't yet, I'd love for you to head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our show. Whenever you have some free time, I'd so appreciate if you could leave us a rating and a review. From what I hear, it helps our show become more visible to new listeners, and I'm grateful for your support. Now, on to today's conversation, we have Nova Rensuma with us today. Nova is the author of the number one New York Times bestselling novel, The Walls Around Us, which was an Edgar Award finalist. She also wrote Imaginary Girls and Seventeen and Gone and is a co-creator of Foreshadow, a serial YA anthology. Her newest novel, A Room Away from the Wolves, comes out on September 4th and a very happy book birthday to Nova. In today's episode, we discuss some real talk about the financial circumstances of writers with student loans and the realities of being an artist and making money. We also go into what it's like being an artist in a relationship and balancing your passions along with your partners. We dive into all the ins and outs of MFA programs through Nova's experiences and perspective, along with crucial advice she has for those who are currently thinking about applying. She walks us through her latest novel, A Room Away from the Wolves, from the story inspiration to the process of writing the novel. We even talk about getting lost in the forest of creative blocks and how to pull yourself out of the dark. We touch on even more throughout the conversation, like the different ways to find a writing partner and how to select the right literary agent for you. This episode is like a warm hug. So let's just quickly jump right in. So before we get into the craft talk and the writing, I mean, I'm assuming now that, you know, growing up in Hudson Valley, in the Catskills, in the mountains, like, God, that that allows for so much creativity to come in and weave into your life because you probably felt like you needed to keep yourself busy and all that. So how did storytelling come about for you specifically? And do you remember when you first fell in love with storytelling? I feel like for me, it all began, you know, with reading and with books and discovering books and having the escape valve, you know, like I said, I desperately wanted to be somewhere else. And there was a point when it really felt like it crystallized when I was around 12 and 13. And we lived, see, we moved around in a bunch of different places. And these two years, we lived on a dirt road that didn't even have a name. It was like rural route something. Like it was like this unnamed road. And up like there was a steep dirt driveway. And this was before the internet. We didn't have television. Like there was no cable up there. There was no television reception. And so all I had when I was home after school or on weekends if I wasn't with friends were the books in the house. We weren't even close enough to walk to a store or a library or anything. So I only had the books in the house. We didn't have a lot of money, so it's not like we were buying books left and right. And so I just read everything on my mother's bookshelf that in existence anything she had. And I discovered Margaret Atwood around that time. She, My mom was a hippie. So there was a lot of, you know, 70s empowering women kind of novels. But then my, my stepfather was also, you know, kind of a, a, a strange dude. And so there was some horror novels on the shelf. There were like alien abduction uh, memoirs. Oh. <laughs> it was, like, was like everything. I read everything. Okay. And it was, <laughs> and it was around this time that I just, I, I, I think something opened up in me and I thought, you know, maybe I could write something like this. Maybe I could be telling stories. And so I started just telling, like writing stories. I wasn't thinking ahead to like novel length. It was just, I'd write little stories, little short stories or poems. And so it really began for me from reading and just wanting to also do what I loved, you know, to create something that, that I loved so much. So maybe I should try it. 
What was your support system that made you believe, you know what, this will be doable, aside from the authors that you read? Yeah, it's true. There was no one in my family who did anything artistic. Everyone worked. They worked jobs they often hated. It was for necessity and money was always a big issue. And it was always just like, you have to do something practical. You can't be an artist. It was never something that I thought of that would be honestly my job. I never thought of it as something that like I would make money doing. You know, it was just something that I loved on the side and I didn't think it would be a career. I certainly never saw myself having published novels and being a New York Times bestselling author. That is not anything that that I thought was attainable for me or anything I even like put in my head consciously to strive for. It just didn't seem possible. You know, I had more practical things like I thought I'll grow up you know, maybe I'll be a journalist. And and what it turned into is I wanted to work in publishing. And I did work in publishing for many years. But being an artist felt like the farthest thing from possible for me. And I just, I never, I don't know, it didn't didn't seem like, it, it was a dream, but it wasn't like, this is your going to be your whole life. It might not ever happen. But I did have one person who was just like the cheerleader for all my dreams. And that was my mother. And even though she had, you know, she's, She's still working jobs and unable to retire and, you know, like wishing she wanted to be a visual artist herself. She wanted to she actually wanted to go to FIT. And yeah, she wanted to be a fashion designer in the beginning and she wasn't able to. And then she wanted to now she paints and she wanted to be an artist, but she was never able to to do any of this. And so I think and she just had jobs to, you know, sometimes she had home businesses. She used to have a home business sewing clothes for, for kids. And, you know, now she has gone back to school and gotten her degree and done other things. So for my mom, I think she, I was her first kid. I was her first daughter. And I think she was just putting all of the hopes and dreams that she was never able to go after into me. And so when I said, I want to write, she was just like, I will do anything I can to make this possible for you. And I think that she believed in it more than I did. So there was a time when um, I was about, I was 17 and I got into this like writing workshop, summer writing workshop, and I had applied for it, not really thinking about how much money it would be. But, and I think at the time it may have been like $500, but that felt like, I mean, when you don't have anything that's like, that's, it's impossible. And my mom just like, she was like, no, you were going. And she called and she got me like a partial scholarship. And then we had to come up with the rest of it. And so we, we, you know, we asked my father, who my parents were divorced. So I went over and I asked my father for the money to go do this workshop. And I remember he said no. And he said, you know, I should think of doing something practical. And he told me that I should go be a dental hygienist. What? Which is such a random Right. It's like, I've laughed about it for years because I'm like, where did he come up with this? I don't even know. Who knows, right? Isn't that weird? So he just, you know, he was like, no, you know, not helping. And so we ended up asking a friend of my mother's who loaned me the money. And then I worked, I worked off for the next year to pay her back the money. But it was like, that's just an example of my mom's like, absolute belief that what I was doing was, you know, worthy of exploring and worthy of me doing. And she's been behind me every second of the way. So I look at all of that, like, you know, where I grew up and and school where, you know, I, I didn't talk too much about this, but I was the quiet kid in school who just like, I barely spoke. And I don't think I felt, you know, I think writing was where I felt like I could express myself, but I never thought anyone would even like it, right? And I had this one person, my mom, who was just like, always believed. 
And I don't think I'd be anywhere without her. Uh, I had chills, by the way, when you were sharing all of this about your mom, because I've met so many people who've told me, um, and this is in person, where they weren't allowed to go after their dreams because their parents failed at trying to do something similar. And so I don't know if it was out of fear to protect their children or resentment because they never had the opportunity or doubt like, well, I thought I was the best and I never tried. What makes you think you'll actually do it? Or a combination. So the fact that your mom wanted to do a lot of similar things in the arts didn't have the chance to, but still did everything she could to make sure that you could have the opportunity says so much about your mom's character and what an incredible parent she is. You don't come across parents like that all the time, you know? So you're really lucky you have someone like that who's like by your side. Yeah. And she sounds so cool. She's pretty great. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You're so lucky. You're such an amazing mom. Seriously. I also want to weave this into schooling, which I noticed that you went to get your MFA at Columbia Mm -hmm. University. You're now in Philly, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm now in Philly. Okay, so you're in Philly now, which means you're not faculty at VCFA anymore? Or oh, you I still am. are? So, so okay. um, Vermont College of Fine Arts is a low residency MFA program. So that means we're only on campus twice a year in January and July. And then other times we work like online or by phone. So oh, I'm yes, still yes. actively on faculty at VCFA, um, even though I'm here in Philly. Yeah, that's incredible. How How is your time teaching? How do you like it? I will say it's a lot of time spent, but I will also say that it is the one thing that makes, you know, this author part of my life, um, I think bearable and, you know, being an author is this, you know, it's a wonderful gift. It's amazing publishing books, but it's also a lot of focus on myself. Right. And like Mm -hmm. when the writing's going really well, that's great. But when it's not, it's horrible. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, the self-promotion part of it, like I have a book coming out very soon and I feel like I'm just talking about myself all the time and it's very uncomfortable. (laughs) I'm too shy and I'm like, ah, stop talking about yourself. (laughs) So a lot of the focus is all on me. It's like me, me, me. And I, I don't, I don't enjoy that. It feels like I feel exposed. I feel prickly. I feel uncomfortable. And so teaching has been this way where I can really just think about other people's writing and I could focus my energy on, on helping other people with their stories and really thinking deeply about what they're doing. And I love it. It just has given me that, that just like a sense of like, just calm in the midst of, of, you know, the more tangled parts of being a published author. Right. So you know, I, I started teaching at VCFA and I really found like I found my community. They're very, um, there's, there's a positivity there. There's a love for craft and there's just like an energy that felt very refreshing and really exciting to be a part of. And so mm. I really love doing it. And even though it takes a lot of time, you know, that's the reality of it. It's like this worthwhile expenditure of time and energy and it just feels like it's fulfilling me in new ways and then when I go off to do my own writing I'm often inspired by my students or just thinking about things we talked about or like you know having ideas that wouldn't have come if not for the conversations we had so it just feels very full circle too gosh I like you a lot you're really cool you know that? I just have to say you're a very genuine person. You're you're just yeah. a really nice human being. And I, I gravitate towards that. How was your time as well on the other side studying at Columbia for your MFA in fiction? Mm. 
see, that's the, the difference. I say VCFA is full of positivity and great energy. And so my experience at Columbia was absolutely not that. Oh, so I'll, begin, no. I'll, I'll tell you that I went to Columbia straight out of college. So when I was 22, when I started, and I was the youngest person in my class year at that time. And I was also the person who had the least amount of experience to write about and like ideas. And, you know, there were people who were coming to that program with life experience and years worth of things to put in books and had novel manuscripts. And I had like maybe three short stories and, and no ideas for novels. And just so I look at that time and I think, I wish I could have gone back in time and told myself, you know, if you want an MFA, wait, just wait, wait, you know, wait 10 years or something, wait until you're like really poised to to make, you know, take advantage of it. But I, you know, at the same time, if I had gone back in time and told myself that I wouldn't have listened because I, I can be very stubborn when I want something. So I wouldn't have listened, you know, wouldn't have mattered. You know, what can you do, right? (laughs) you know, it's not wasted. Like you saying this helps our community. Cause I know there have been several listeners. I, I think I saw uh, something similar about going into MFA programs. Like either it was in our private Facebook group or on Twitter and they were wondering, is it even worth it to go to an MFA? And I think just hearing that is already really helpful for them in making a decision. Yeah. If there's any other advice that you could share too, like I'm so down to hear, and I know the community would be like, so happy to hear it as well. Well, I feel like an MFA is just this magical, wonderful experience when you're in the place to do it, right? And when you're in the place to really dive into your craft, when you can take those two years and just really be ready, your, your writing is at the place where you feel like I am ready to just, you know, kind of, you know, it, sometimes it hurts to to realize that you're not doing as well as you could be and you know something could be much better and and to really question yourself it's not easy this is hard it's hard work and i think you know for me i i look back and i know that if i had only waited i would have gotten a lot more out of it but at the same time the thing is you can only get an mfa once really you know so i did it too soon and i just wish i had waited you know and also my decision in going to columbia honestly i mean i mentioned that you know it was my dream to live in new york city so i was in college i went to a small college in ohio actually and when i got into mfa programs i applied you know when i was in college and there was one i was going to go to boss in boston and there were a couple of others and then i got into columbia in new york city and i dropped everything I was just like I was like it is New York City like and no one I don't I think my mom understood but no one else understood I was just like I don't even know what you're talking about it's New York like you know I don't even care about the student loans it's New York I mean now I I certainly care about the student loans but, um, but I just I was so enamored and I was just I couldn't even handle it. And I went and I was just like, I had stars in my eyes. And so I, there was so much of the, my time there that I loved in just working on fiction and working with writers I admired. And I was the editor of the literary journal and things like that. Wow. But at the same time, I now look at it and like, oh, if only I had, you know, I had written more. Because at the time, I, first of all, I didn't know that I wanted to write YA. And I wrote a novel, I spent five years writing a novel that was kind of semi-autobiographical about childhood and my family. And I ended up just shelving it and not publishing it because it just wasn't, it wasn't the book, right? It just Mm -hmm. wasn't worthy. And so I just spent, it was like a practice time for me. 
So for me, it was a lot of timing. And then there was also the thing about Columbia had a very different atmosphere than BCFA. It was very cutthroat and it was very, you know, harsh. And I remember after every workshop, you know, when we'd discuss our pages, you'd go into the bathroom and someone would be crying. Wow. Are you serious? Yeah. I wish I was exaggerating, but it was just, it was a really really hard time. And so that's incredibly toxic. It was really toxic. And so I remember all of this. And I remember like the, you know, people like stepping over each other to get in with the professor to get get the referral to the agent and all those things. Right. And I think of that time. And I just, when I was thinking of teaching, I thought, I don't want to teach in that kind of environment. And I don't want to teach that kind of competitive cutthroat, grotesque kind of workshop. And so when I teach, it is absolutely not that. And I'm not saying that I'm just like, you know, bubbly and nice. Like we're honest and we go in deep and we talk, but we're doing it in a constructive way and we're not trying to tear each other down. And so that's why, you know, that's the part of teaching that I love. And that's why VCFA is a good fit for me, because that really is the mentality there. I, I wouldn't want to teach in some like a program otherwise. Like what would be the point of just crushing people's dreams? I felt like so many people's dreams were crushed who I went to school with. And I have to say, I'll look, I'll, be, I'll get curious sometimes and I'll look them up. Mo- most of them, the majority of the people in my class, I don't even think they're writing anymore. <gasps> oh my God, sad. I just got goosebumps. That's yeah. really sad. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty sad. Okay, so this actually makes me wonder for those who are looking and have no idea about the culture of like each school's, uh, the way they run things. How, I mean, how does one know if Columbia were to be such a cutthroat competitive kind of environment? I mean, like, how does one find out? Do you advise them like reaching out to some alumni from those schools they were looking yeah. at? Yeah, I absolutely think that that's the way to, to really get like an honest assessment is to talk to recent alums. I mean, for example, you know, I went to Columbia a while ago. Who knows if it's any different now? True, you know, that's it's, true. It was years ago. So like, I don't know. But, you know, but for I would say if you're looking at different programs, talk to recent grads. And I feel like if you're going to you're going to find that there are going to be programs where the graduates are so excited to talk to you and they just like want to share their experience. That is a very good sign. And I think that's, that's actually one of the reasons why I was drawn to VCFA to teach. You know, I already had my MFA. I couldn't go back for another one and I wanted to find a place to teach. And I just, the community, I just heard everyone talking about how wonderful it was and how, how much they got out of it. And I remember thinking, I want to be a part of something like that. And so it's like the word of mouth was there and it, it's, it was the alums and it was the, the students talking. So I think if, if someone, you know, if you're looking at different programs, you know, first of all, the faculty there is a good, you know, assessment of the kind of, you know, writing teaching you're going to get. Um, but of course, you can love somebody's book and they could also be a terrible teacher. So you never know. But, <laughs> but also, you know, the way the program is structured, if it's low residency or if it's full time, but so much like is, you know, it's it's not really fully honest on the website, right? Yes, like, of course. So, so you need to talk to people who've been to the program. And a lot of times these programs will connect you with alums, but you can also, you know, find ways to, to connect with them, perhaps in Facebook groups or things like that, where, you know, you'll be able to connect with recent people who've been there who can be honest and tell you, you know, what 
this program was like for them. And of course, a program is different for everyone. But if you talk to a few people and you get a sense that this is the place where you might fit in, that that could mean that it's a good program for you. And then there's also, you know, you can also visit. And some, like I, I know at BCFA, we have, I think there's like a, like a visiting couple of days in the midst of every residency where we're open to people coming and, you know, visiting our lectures and talking to people and being on campus. And I think that would really give you a good sense too, if you can afford to come and visit. But it's really, it's hard often to pick the, the right program. Clearly, when I was choosing, I was enamored by location. (laughs) I just was like, I want to live in the city. And maybe that wasn't the best assessment of where I should have gone. Maybe I should have been a little more discerning. (laughs) But you know what I think about? Maybe your life experiences in the city of New York provided you a lot of inspiration for your books in the end. Yeah. I mean, I think about that. I mean, I have to, the reality of it is Columbia opened up a lot of doors for me. You know, it led to- opportunities. It was a, you know, it's, it was a, you know, a big MFA program with a lot of connections and it led to, you know, it certainly led to helping me get my jobs in publishing and, and, you know, my first publications and all of that. So I definitely, I, you know, I look at it and I can say the things that weren't right, but I can, I also look at it and I think, well, what if I wouldn't have wouldn't I wouldn't have ended up here if I didn't go there so I I can't take it back right it is what it is and I and all the you know the missteps of like not knowing what I should write for years all of that led to me finding my voice and writing the novels I feel like I was meant to write so I guess I can't take any of it back even if I even if I have some regrets like they were worthy of going through right yeah I mean it is but at the end of the day I do think toxic environments Mm does pay a huge price. And yeah. it reminds me of so many of these family friends that I would grow up hearing where they would get accepted to really good Ivy League schools, but knowing it's not what they need to do what they wanted to do, but then yeah. they accept it and go into those schools that are so high pressured and a kind of environment that they really genuinely do not like, but they do it for the face because the name sounds good to bring their family honor and whatnot Mm -hmm. instead of going with a quote unquote, a smaller school, but it would have provided that really healthy environment that they would have grown probably much faster as people. Yeah. I do wonder if someone were to have that opportunity to be like, oh yes, I'm able to get into this one writing program that sounds incredible with an incredible name and that can open lots of doors or versus like a super small one. I think those Mm -hmm. are questions, I guess, that they would have to really think about really for themselves and like what is worth it for them. Because other people are like, you know what? I don't mind that toxicity for like three years and then just get what I need to get, learn and then go. Others are like, oh, hell no, because I would like ruin my life. It is important. You start thinking about mental health. Emotional health is a huge factor. How you go about with your career, with everything. But when I was younger, I always was like, keep going, keep going. But now as the years add on, I'm like, oh my gosh, it is taxing if you do things that wear you down emotionally slash psychologically. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like it's like, there's a, a, certainly a time, certainly when I was much younger, when I went, when I was looking at MFA programs where I cared what people thought. Like I cared so much that like, I remember there were like rankings of the programs and like Columbia was like, I think tied for number three or something. It was like wow. some ridiculous. And I was like, oh, I have to go. It's a top mm-hmm. five. You know what I mean? And like, 
But, and it's like, I cared so much what other people would think of me, but really does that matter in the end? Because what we're, the experience, what you're going to get, get out of it is what you're carrying with you. And it doesn't really matter like the, the exterior, right? The exterior, what people are thinking of your experience. If the experience is not, you know, the, the right thing for you, or if it's not as good as it seems on the outside. And that's again, something like, I don't think I would have listened to when I was younger. I would get an idea in my head and I was like, this is what I'm doing. I'm moving to New York City and I'm doing this and this. And, you know, it was hard for me to hear outside of that. But now, like looking back, I do wonder how would it have been different if I had been in a place that had been more nurturing and where I felt more fulfilled and I didn't feel like I had to like, you know, like hide my head from, from, you know, something being thrown at it. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't cry in the bathroom. Right, exactly. And, you know, I mean, it took me a while to publish my first book. So like, maybe I would have published my first book years before I did. Who knows? Mm, Okay, that is those are really good points. Thank you for diving into this with me, because these are great questions for people to ask for themselves and just to really think thoroughly. And you gave such great life advice overall. So I appreciate that. And coming to New York City, I know you loved wanting to be in this environment and you're like, yes, New York City. Hell yeah, I'm going with Columbia. How were you able to survive? Oh, my God. You know, I, I, I got a lot of student loans. You know, my, my family didn't have money, so nobody was helping me. I got some scholarships, but they weren't full scholarships. And so I had a lot of student loans. And I am I am like carrying those student loans years later right now. Like I they are just I, the awareness of the student, like what I did, you know, that I made this decision when I was too young to really understand the repercussions and how long I would have to deal with this. Yeah. So I'm living with it now. And it is, it, it was, a, you know, I, I, I hate to say that it was a terrible mistake, but it was just, I wish that I didn't have this. And so the reality of the situation is, you know, maybe if I had waited to get my MFA, I would have been smarter in the choice of where I went. I wouldn't have gone to such an expensive school, I would hope. I would have gone to maybe a school where, you know, I had an opportunity to teach and, and be paid to to be there, which some programs did. And so, you know, the, the money situation, it was really incredibly overwhelming. And so, and I will add to that by saying that, so I moved to New York and I started at Columbia and then my boyfriend from college came and joined me and we've been together a very long time and he went and got his MFA in film at NYU. So imagine all the student loans we have, like the ballooning effect. And so we were living in New York for years and years and living in the way that you're not sure if you're going to be able to keep it up for the next month. You're like, well, okay, I can get through this month. You know, I hope I can make it next month. And I felt like that was pretty much our lives for quite a a long time. And we lived in after I graduated Columbia, and I I lost my student housing, we had to get an actual apartment. Um, Oh my gosh, how'd you guys keep up with that? I know that was so hard. We got lucky and we got a rent stabilized apartment. And that was where I lived with him. It was tiny, it was dark for about 16 years until a few months ago. And it was just, we just kept up with this apartment because, you know, being an artist, being a writer, and he actually, he was in the film industry and then he actually left the film industry to go get a job as he's a web designer now to have health insurance so I could <gasps> write, which is, what? you know, so, Are you yeah, kidding I know, me? Isn't that, 
I know. He doesn't want me to talk about that too much, but I couldn't have done this without him, right? So we were like struggling every month to basically keep our heads above water in this tiny little apartment. And it was just, it was really hard. And it, it, you know, even when we got to the point where like, we were like, you know, maybe our shoulders were above water, you know, I was publishing more and, and his job was, was steady and we had good health insurance. It was still, it just felt like one little thing could take us down. And then like, where would we be, be in the city? And like, my family's not in the city anymore. Like, who would we go to? It was so frightening. So that's one of the reasons why we, you know, we left three months ago, we now have an apartment that's cheaper and three times the size. And the reason I moved to Philadelphia is my sister is here. So now I'm near family. Oh, thank God. Okay. It just, yeah, like it feels like a better situation. And also, you know, thinking about being an artist and making money, like the support system of being near family, being in a place that's not wildly expensive. You know, Philadelphia is a, a much more affordable city for artists. It was just one of those difficult decisions where, you know, you're talking to someone who loves New York. Like, I love that place. I love it. And when I talk about it, I get a little sad because I miss oh, it. No, but yeah. it was it wasn't the life that I wanted for myself there. I couldn't I couldn't make it work there. You know, so, you know, I had to, I had it and I got, you know, my dreams came true there and so many amazing things happened for me there. And I, I did, you know, my, I, I spent like my youth there and I did all these great things there. But I, I also came to a point where I was like, you know, financially and realistically, I think we need to try something else now. Yeah. So that's, that's what that decision was. So it really is for your listeners, like it yes. was that hard choice about like, how do I do something creative and afford to live. This is very, very eye-opening because a lot of our listeners have family, children. And we talk a lot about sacrifice too. And what your boyfriend has done for you and how much he loves you and sees and believes in you. I mean, I mean, that's love right there. I mean, I have so much love for him for doing that for you. And I'm really blown away. I'm like going to tear up right now because I feel like I don't I don't really hear many stories about people giving up what they're doing or putting it aside, at least for now, just to make sure the partner can do what they love to do. Yeah, he's very selfless. And he's my husband now. We have oh since my married, but, but he's he's just he's very selfless. And he's he's also the person who reads everything I write first wow. before anyone. He reads it and he's honest and he, he will be very honest. And he's just like, he has my, you know, we're partners and he has my best interest in mind. But I have to say on the other side of it, the person who's like gaining from this, sometimes I just feel like, not to get like too honest, but I just feel really sad and guilty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel really bad. And he assures me, you know, he he doesn't want to be in the film industry anymore. I mean, maybe, you know, you were in LA and you were an actress, maybe you understand, but Mm -hmm. just there's so much about Hollywood that's just about taking and taking and just, he just just it, it just wore him down. He just didn't want to be a part of that anymore. And so it's not what he wants anymore. But it's also like so much of our lives is centered on like, you know, me and my novels. And often that feels it feels imbalanced. Does it feel you know? like a lot of pressure when you're producing it's, your work? Like, oh, my oh, gosh, yes. if I if I don't break through, let's say this creative block right now, not only is it just like writing it on me, but yes. my husband's dreams like, yeah, it's really hard. And like, even, you know, with having a new book coming out and like worrying about is it going to do well? And also like, what is well, and like, sometimes just the pressure of it, because it's not just on me, you know, it's us. And 
it, it, it's just too much, you know, it's really upsetting. And I worry a lot. So, you know, so there's all of that. And that's part of another reason why the teaching is such a good thing for me, because mm. it's something else. It's, it's another stream of income. Yes, I love it. And it also it adds a bit of stability and a bit of sense of like, it helps with the balance, I think a lot more. So for those listeners who may be going through something like this, and they're having like a tug of war where they're significant others right now, and let's say they're coming at a crossroad where they feel like they are pushed to a point where it's like now either I give up on this relationship or I give up on my artistry, on my my passion, my love. How do you have conversations with your significant other in a way that makes them understand that you can hopefully balance both or have both in a healthy way? I mean, I think, you know, when you're when you're in a like a true partnership with someone, like you just want their dreams as much as you want your dreams. And you know, when when my you know when my other half was in film school, like I wanted that so badly for him. We I, I remember um, when he was making his his films um, in school, like you know helping on set, and like I remember bringing like a like a bubby cart of like coffee to set for like all the people on his crew, and like like doing anything I could, and we put all this stuff on credit cards and like all this stuff. Rev, Right. So like we've we've kind of like go back and forth, like wanting to help each other's dreams. And unfortunately, my part of the dream seems to be taking up a lot of time in our lives. But um, I, I feel like so much of it is just a true partnership. You really want your, that other person's dreams to come true and you want to do everything you can to succeed. But you also need to be honest about, you know, what you want and not be selfish about taking everything for yourself. So, you know, a lot of times, like there's some, you know, there, there are some opportunities. There was a point when I was going away a lot to different artist colonies, which was really wonderful and great for my writing. But I would go away for like a month at a time and I would leave Eric at home um, to deal with the bills and to deal with just life and like, you know, just our, 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 our terrible little apartment. And um, I, 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 there were just a number of times when I was doing this and I realized that it, there was a terrible imbalance at that point where I was being too selfish and putting what I wanted too much in the forefront and just kind of like not thinking about my other half as much as I should have. And so it's a lot about, you know, talking and being honest about what you want, but also listening and hearing, you know, how does that affect the person that you're with? You know, how does that, um, how does that land on this other person? And how can you carry the weight of your dreams together? Okay, so here's a question for you. Let's just rewind this, right? Before he switched careers, what if he said to you, Nova, I can't do this anymore. You need to get a full-time job. What Mm -hmm. would you say to him? Well, I, I did, I had the full-time job for quite a long time, but if it was the question of, um, you know, you'd have to go back and get the full-time job, honestly, I just want him to be happy and I would do it. I would do it. And I would still write, like I would still find ways to write. The thing is, is when I had a full-time job and I was working in publishing, I would get up at five in the morning and write for like, you know, two hours before I had to go to work. Like I found time to write. It's hilarious how, you know, now that I have more flexible time, I am not that, <laughs> you know, like dedicated. So like, yeah. I'm, right. It's like, yes. That always happens. I know. I know I could do it. Also, like, I want him 
to reach his dreams and to be happy. And I often try and push him because he's a creative person. And so I keep being like, you should write a YA novel. You should do this. Like, and if he said to me, I want to do this. This is what I'm doing. I honestly would find a way to figure out, you know, a way to be the one carrying the health insurance, you know, but because it's just, it, it's, again, it's a partnership. You know, we're in this for our lives and we're both artists. We, we made the conscious choice not to have children and it's the two of us. And it, it is, it's, there's an equal relationship there. And so if he wanted that, if he was ready, if he was at the point where like there was something he wanted to work on and he was asking, I, I absolutely would want to do that. Yes. Oh my gosh. Can yeah, you like do, <laughs> can you do like a talk on relationships and being giving and being there for each other? And I mean, this is really incredible. Like, I feel like I'm learning so much from you too. So I know you don't like to promote yourself, but um, so <laughs> I will force you. Uh, this beautiful new book that's coming out, A Room Away from the Wolves, that is coming out in September. I'm very excited for you to share more about it with us. So A Room Away from the Wolves, please give our community a snapshot. A Room Away from the Wolves, it's a ghost story about the tangled bonds between mother and daughter, about complicated female friendship and needing to find a place to belong. The story takes place when my main character, Bina, runs away from home to stay in a boarding house, a refuge for troubled girls deep in the heart of New York City. This is a house full of supernatural secrets, living memories, a door to face the past, while all along its founder, Catherine, watches from a framed photograph on the wall above the fireplace. So during one intense summer month, Bina discovers that her choice to stay or to go may be entirely out of her hands. And that's my little pitch. <laughs> Ooh, beautiful. Oh my gosh. I, it's like I was listening to an audiobook. My goodness. <laughs> now, where did this story come about? So after I finished writing The Walls Around Us, my last book, I was working on a totally other novel, like a completely other novel that no one knows about. And I was away at an artist colony in Saratoga Springs, and I was really struggling with this book. There was a reason that there was just something about it. It was hard to get into. It was really intense material. And I was staying in an old, an old house. It was actually what they called the winter mansion because during the winter months, the, the people who had owned this property before would stay in this particular smaller mansion, which was smaller than the other mansion. So it was this old house. There were other artists in the house with me. And I just, I had a very strange experience when I was there. When I was in my room one night, I, I like was having trouble sleeping the, one of the first nights. And I rolled over and there was a woman standing in my room, just kind of like going about her business. Mm -hmm. um, she looked like she was maybe doing something at a dresser or something. I remember her hair very specifically. I freaked out, you mm -hmm. know, freaked out she she like disappeared and I can say that it's probably I was exhausted I was like in an unfamiliar place like I can explain away all the things but it just stuck with me and then when I was there in the house there was um the founder of this artist colony had a, a portrait of her on the wall above the fireplace in the mm -hmm. living room and when I was writing this other book, I would there would be quiet hours in this house where you you weren't allowed to like talk to the other artists or like make a lot of noise between I think it was like 
maybe 8 a.m. until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So during the quiet hours, I would go and I would kind of like pace in circles in this living room that was um, decorated with gold velvet furniture and old like, you know, knickknacks and stuff. And it felt like the portrait on the wall was just like observing me, you know, in the room and just like would its eyes were on me wherever I was. And it just kind of like settled with me. And I, I kept that. And it wasn't until a few months after I left, you know, I went, I went home, I was in my real life back in New York City, and I realized I didn't want to write the other book that I thought I was writing. Like, that wasn't, it wasn't the time, I wasn't, I wasn't able to do it right now. I had another book I wanted to write, and it was a ghost story, and it was set in a boarding house, and there was a, you know, a portrait of a woman on the wall, and like, there was this, all this stuff that came from the experience of being in this place that kind of infused itself into me and made me want to write this book. So that's really where, you know, when I started writing A Room Away from the Wolves. And then, of course, I just thought, you know, I've always wanted to write about the city. And all of my books before that had been in set, you know, where I'm from in the Hudson Valley and the Catskill Mountains. And it was almost like I wasn't allowing myself to write about this place that I loved so much. Like I didn't have permission because I'm not from here. You know, like even though I was born on Long Island, so like I didn't grow up in the city. So it was like it wasn't mine to tell. Right. And I just I couldn't keep it in anymore. And I, I just I was I have to write this book right now. And so it was just like a, a, a storm that, you know, I, I had to actually, you know, contact my editor and say, you know what, that draft that you saw of that previous book, is there any way I could pull that and switch to something else? You know, I really, I had to do that because I suddenly was just filled with inspiration to write this other book. Wow. Okay. First of all, you, I know you said you freaked out. I'm just rewinding just a, a few, <laughs> few sentences before. I know you said you freaked out, but... Uh, girl, you sounded real calm compared to me because I probably would have ran out screaming and I wouldn't even have the guts to even work on a story that had to do with anything relating to that girl that popped up because I would be so scared. I wouldn't be able to sleep. You know, it's years later, so I'm like much more able to like talk about it. And I've told the story before, but I will I will honestly tell you that I was so terrified <laughs> that I slept with the light on. So this was a four-week residence. I think it was a three or four-week oh, residence. Oh, hell I no. I slept with the light on the entire time. Like the entire time. And I didn't, and I was afraid to talk about it to anyone because I didn't want anyone to, to like say, oh, yes, that's real. Or, oh, I've seen a ghost too. Or like anything. Like I just didn't want to talk about it to anyone because I felt like if I said it out loud, it would make it real. So I just, I didn't tell anyone until the very last night that I was staying in this house when I was about to leave on the train the next morning. And I was down in the common area with the other artists. And I said, I don't even know how it came up. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, my second night here, I saw a woman in my room. And two of the artists who had been there before, who'd, who'd stayed here on multiple occasions, turned to me and said, oh, you saw the woman. And then I was oh, just like, oh, my God. Oh, no. Yeah, like, I can't even tell you. Like, I was so petrified. <sighs> I absolutely did not sleep that last night at all. Like, not oh even, like, God. I was just, I'm like, I'm, I'm leaving. The train is at nine in the morning. Like, I'm, I was so scared. And I and you and you have to notice that like 
Note that I didn't start writing the book while I was there. Like I waited for months afterwards when I was safe at home in New York City and then I started writing it, right? Like I couldn't. I was so terrified. Oh my God, no. <laughs> I would have freaked. I think honestly I would have gone home. Like I would have gone back to the city. I would have been like, bye, <laughs> peace. Yeah, no. Oh my God. I just, I literally have chills everywhere. Like I'm so grateful, Nova, that we're chatting when it's still daytime. Like if this is nighttime, I think I would literally have to take off my headphones just to like skip this part and let you continue talking and then put it back on. You're like, I'm done. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're so brave. Because I believe in all of this. Like I, I have family members all the time and friends who've seen. And I'm like grateful. I'm like, thank you, universe, whoever's up there, please keep me blind with these kind of things. Like I just don't know. I don't want to see anything. Nope, thank you. I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to see anything. I don't want to smell anything. Done. Yeah, I know. I get it. Like people always say to me, oh, how do you write these creepy novels? And oh, you know, I don't know. I, mm. I, first of all, it's not creepy when I'm writing it because I wrote it and I made it up. So it's not, it doesn't scare me. But also um, I don't, I actually really do get scared of things like this. So people will, will come to me and they'll like, well, let me tell you my, my ghost story. And I'm like, if you tell me your ghost story, like I am not going to sleep tonight. Like, I want to hear it, but like, I am also terrified. <laughs> So yeah, I'm, I'm very easily frightened. And I don't know if people who read my books would believe it, but it's true. Oh my gosh. I I still say you are very brave. I know you said that you're writing it, you're controlling what's written. But I mean, even then it's almost like the muse. Like I would be so afraid that I'm almost like stirring up that muse to come back and say, hey, what's up, girl? What you going to write about me now? I would be so afraid. You know what I mean? Like, uh, oh no. no. If I have a scary dream tonight, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to email you and I let know. you know. Because oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. Are you comfortable sharing the name of this residency? Because I honestly, I can't even go. Like, I'll avoid it because I'll be so scared. Um, I absolutely can can tell people the name of this residency because it's a very, you know, well-known residency that a lot of people want to go to. And it is also well-known to be haunted. And I don't think anyone would deny it. So it's called Yaddo. Y-A-D-D-O. It's in Saratoga Springs, New York. And I mean, this is a place where like, you know, many famous authors have gone, you know, Truman Capote to, you know, like, I think even Mario Puzo, who wrote The, the Godfather, went. like, this has been like years of, of artists and writers who've gone there. And it's just a very prestigious, wonderful place. I've been, I think it's twice. And it's wonderful. But Yes, it is actually, I think, haunted. I'm like, dang it. Why does it have to be so prestigious at the same yeah. time? Oh, my and gosh. I think, I think like anyone affiliated with Yaddo would say, yes, um, pro- there have been things that people have said. And I think that's just like well known across, you know, the history and like the, you know, the stories about the colony. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, that's just what it is. There's just a lot of history there. Okay, so that's good to know. Thank you so much for hooking me up with that info. I appreciate you for protecting me. (laughs) Going back to your book, I'm so curious, like when writing this, did you feel like you were almost, I don't know if possessed is the right word, but do you feel like you were able to easily write and there was like flow of creativity more than your works beforehand? You know, like there was, this is like maybe a a little sidetrack or like a whole other thing, but I think the problem that I had with, just writing in general after my last book is I just was filled with so much doubt. Like I just was just questioning everything about myself and like what I should be writing and how my writing was. And I was just, I, I was surprised by how, how hard it was and how, how, how much I struggled. So there were parts of this book where when I was able to let go of that, and I was able to just like 
be like, it doesn't matter anymore. Who cares what anyone thinks or, you know, what this book does in the world? Just it's your story. That's when I was just completely, you know, almost possessed and just like fully embodied in the moment. And I think, I think when, you know, when, when people are reading this book, the places where like, it feels like the scene kind of sweeps you away and you're just like, so in it, those are probably the moments where I too felt swept away. And I forgot myself for a moment and I was so in it, but there were other parts and I think it was, you know, in earlier drafts that have now been rewritten, where I just, I, I had a hard time. And I think it was just maybe the expectations I set out for myself of what would be next, you know, and also, you know, some of what we talked about, about the practicalities of, you know, this, this artist's life and like, you know, making money off of it and the responsibility of being the person who's doing that. And so it was just, a, it was a lot. And I think, I let some of that get in the way of the process of writing this book. And I think that's why there were, I think there were in total seven drafts. So, you know, there's a lot that was written for this book that never ended up in the book that no one will ever see because I was, I was trying to figure out what the story really wanted to be. And I was writing through my fear, you know, I was getting through all this stuff and once I got through it and it clicked, it was hypnotic and it did feel like I was possessed. But before that, it was a bit, I was lost in a forest. You know? Okay. You are like the perfect person to ask for our community. <laughs> what's your best advice from what you've gathered and, and observed when they're in their own, you know, being lost in the forest and just trying to find that light? Well, basically, mm -hmm. what can you share with them? Yeah, I mean, I have been there. So to anyone listening, like clearly... Sometimes you think, you know, you publish a book and then you, you reach this point where like, oh, it's, you yeah. know what you're doing next time. And like, you know how to, like, I didn't know how to get myself out of my forest. Like I was, I was so lost in my forest and I, I think, I just, it was, I mean, there were like, like we're talking about like, you know, the, the, the artist partnership and like someone having to live with a fellow artist. Like there were like many times where I would just burst into tears out of frustration of just like, I am, I, there was a particular scene in the book that was difficult for me to wrap my brain around. And every time I got to it, I would get very upset. And I would just like, I didn't know what I was doing. And I, I was so upset. And I think that, and, and I think that the, the thing that helped me is the thing that I thought that I didn't need is like my, my other half, Eric, he would constantly be like, let's talk it through. And I would be like, I can't talk about <laughs> you, you don't understand. I would just freak out. And I have to tell you, talking it through actually, <laughs> like, you know, like after like multiple, like, you know, like ridiculously emotional moments, um, it really did help to find a trusted person. And that person can be your partner. It could be a writing friend. It could be a teacher. It could be just someone who like you can be yourself with on the page and you can kind of like, it's okay if your idea isn't fully formed, they're not going to judge you for it, right? Just you just mm. need one person who, who will be that person for you. And who's who will be honest, but who also like, isn't going to be like, well, you suck. You know, like they know things come from like a bad, you know, sometimes don't come out as, as gracefully as they end up, right? And it really, really helped me when I was lost in my forest to try and talk through the steps of where I thought this particular scene or, you know, thread of the novel was going. And then you know, face when it wasn't working and try and talk through it. And I usually am someone who's very private about my writing and my stories, and I don't like to talk it through. And I, 
I fought and fought. And then I realized, no, actually, there comes a time when you really need, even if even if that person's just listening, mm-hmm. you need someone on the other side of that. And it could be someone who does it through, you know, like an eye chat, like, an, you know, texting on your phone, it could be on the phone, it could be in person. It's just this other person who's just going to listen and maybe ask questions. And that's what Eric did is he asked me questions. And he would ask questions that like, I, I couldn't answer and I would get very frustrated. And then in discovering the answer, I would have like a light bulb pop on. And I'd realize, oh, you know, this is where it could go, you know, and he just he would just be patient through my getting very upset and ask questions. And that's how I found the way out. And it was just, it, it didn't happen in one instance. This was many, many months and a lot of fighting through it beforehand because I was very stubborn and I was like, no, I can't talk about it. I can, I have to write it down first, but it really, in this instance, it really helped me to talk about it. I think each novel wants a different thing. This particular novel just needed someone else to like kind of bounce off some ideas with and just to be able to talk through. Maybe another novel won't. Maybe I won't need to ever do this again, but I really needed that this time. Wow. I am so happy you have Eric. (laughs) He's an angel. I'm just like, (laughs) he's been very patient. (laughs) It's incredible to find a partnership like that overall. And I hope listeners listening in know, but like you were saying, it doesn't have to be a significant other. It could be a good friend. It could be a writing partner, anybody, a mentor. Mm-hmm. I just hope everyone is able to have that one person, like a kind of bond that you do with Eric. And it's always something I know is like a thing for our listeners. Like, how do they find those people? Yeah, yeah. I've talked a little about this teaching that I do, and I don't just teach at Vermont. I also do workshops outside of that, just for like anyone. And one of the workshops I teach is in California. It's at what's called the Jirasi Resident Artist Program, and it's a week-long retreat. And I found that I think there's something, and it doesn't have to be my workshop. I'm just talking about like this kind of thing in general. There's something about like an intense, focused workshop that's maybe a weekend long or a week where you like connect with other writers and then you have these relationships that follow afterwards. And so I've noticed that so many of the people that have taken my workshops are still like trading work and have become like writing (gasps) partners. Two of them from my last one are writing a book together now, which is just beautiful. Yeah. I just like, I'm in love with it. Oh my God. Congratulations to you. Thank you. I know. I feel like I feel really, really thrilled about it. But the point is that there's something about that in person when you're working together on, on writing and you're talking about your writing in a workshop or or some kind of conference-like environment or a retreat, you know, like a, a retreat where you can find a bond with someone that can last for years. I mean, the people that I had in my earliest workshops, there's like a group of four of them that, you know, it's been what, like five years and they're still trading work and they're still like each other's like best writing friends. And I just, I watched that and I'm like, I don't know how, I don't know how I made that happen. I don't think it was me. It was just some sort of like magic moment. But Oh, you definitely had a part in that though, for sure. I, I mean, I would hope so but I who who knows I certainly can't replicate that again but but just watching it happen and seeing it happen again and again with different groups and watching who stays in touch I think that there's something about that you know it could be one instance one weekend retreat that you go away with some writers and it doesn't you know even have to it could be a DIY thing that doesn't cost a lot and you might end up with this with a bond with a fellow writer that could last for years 
Mm, my gosh, I love that. Okay, I'm going to have these all noted down in your resources for your show notes page. So in case okay. anyone's curious, well, also about um, Yado that we were also talking about and also Jurassic. Yeah. So I'll have all of those linked up. And I am going to weave in now listener questions because I remember they were asking some great writing questions from Caleb John Lawson. He said, Nova is amazing, two exclamation marks. Did one of her writing workshops at the SCBWI conference a year ago and loved her teaching style. She is a treasure. Oh my God. Yeah, see, talking about (laughs) teaching, incredible. And he continues to say, I'd love to hear more about her work at Vermont and particularly um, if and how teaching craft has influenced her own writing style and her philosophy as a writer. I know we touched a lot on this, but in case there's anything that he phrased in a different way, please go ahead. If not, we can just skip to the next one too. Well, I'm I'm so honored that that he wrote in, but I would just say that the thing about um, teaching in Vermont specifically that has that has offered something for my craft is that I get to also be a student while I'm there. I get to sit in on every lecture that the faculty gives as well as the students, Ooh. right? And so I I am right there in the. I always sit in the back. I always sit in like the far back with my notebook, taking all of the notes down and doing all of the writing exercises that are offered, and you know, keeping you know, getting. In inspired and learning. And so that's something I will say that has directly affected my craft and my books is just the talking about writing craft and the really focusing in and, you know, like the microscopic as well as the macro and just thinking of all these different angles. I I feel like constantly challenged and I come away from every residency there just bubbling with ideas to write so for me it's just as fruitful as it is for the students I think so I'll just that's what I'll say (laughs) thank you for that okay I'm sure Caleb's gonna be really happy with that now next we have Lynn Fairchild Hawks she says yay exclamation mark love the walls around us My questions, how did you find an agent and what do you value most in your relationship with yours? What do you know now about structuring a novel that writing your last book taught you? Those are great questions. Mm, Those are really great questions. Well, finding an agent, you know, that's, that's like a whole other like, you know, giant conversation right there. But I will say that I did the the agent that I ended up, you know, putting on my query list when I was looking for agents for imaginary girls, which was like the first time I was able to get an agent was the one that I really wanted was someone whose name I found in the acknowledgments of one of my favorite books. And I know that you hear this a lot. But if there's a book that you really love, and you admire, and you think, even if it's not like your work, but it's just you really, you just think it's like a really special book. And it's someone, you know, a, a writer you admire, if they thank their agent, that might be an agent to look into you for yourself. So I, I, I read a story of a girl by Sarah Zar, and she thanked her agent, Michael Barrett. And I remember just looking up Michael and thinking, you know, he reps one of my favorite books, I'm, I'm going to query him. And so that's how I, I targeted him. That's how I knew that he was, he was someone I wanted to try. But it was also, you know, questions, like when it was time to choose an agent, I had, I, I had a lucky moment in my career that first of all, didn't come easily. I was, it was not my first time querying agents, my first time querying didn't go as well. But when it did go, better. I had an opportunity to choose from between a number of agents and I got to talk to them on the phone. I was in New York at the time, so I got to meet them, which is not something I could have done now. But I I remember when I was talking to Michael, I was just 
asking him, you know, how he saw my career. And that was the thing that really made me know that he was the person for me, because he, what he said was just so specifically how I saw my career. It just really resonated with me. And it made me know that I would be in good hands with him and he wouldn't push me in a direction that didn't feel like me. And so that's how I, I knew to pick him. Do you mind me asking, jumping in, what exactly he said? I'm trying to, I mean, the thing about my writing is, you know, it's kind of weird and it's not like fully commercial. And I remember he talked about, about that, that my voice as a writer is what would carry through in different books. And it wouldn't be about like the big branding moment of like the, you know, the book series at the time, like trilogies were the big thing, the big trilogy or the big, you know, it's not about the one book. It's about, you know, carrying through and telling my stories and that my, my books would, you know, connect with each other over the voice. And I could have, you know, just singular books and they wouldn't have to be trilogies and they wouldn't have to be series. And it felt like, he was, his expectations for me were realistic, but they were also in the arena of what I hoped for myself and what I, I wanted to be writing. So I remember that was a lot of what we talked about. And okay, it, gotcha. felt, it felt like this is someone who, you know, is, is going to see me for who I am, isn't going to expect something that's not me you know, mm-hmm. and is going also to want to, you know, to be with me for the long term over multiple books. Mm, so good. Oh, my gosh. These are great tips, by the way. Thank you so much for that. And her other question was, what do you know now about structuring a novel that writing your last book taught you? Mm, you know, I, <laughs> every book is its own little monster. <laughs> and <laughs> so this last book, I really thought that I would have to, you know, fully outline everything and have have a set plan. I usually write ahead about 50 pages without outlining. And then I step back and I try and outline the rest of the novel and really plan it. This book would not let me do that. So this book's structure was just like outrageously, you know, unwilling to pin down at first, it would not let me figure it out for multiple drafts. And it it became a giant mess. And I think that the the what I learned from this is that First of all, that I was trying to force it to be something that it wasn't. And when that didn't happen, I would get into that frustrating, you know, as I mentioned, the frustrated crying parts yes. of the forest, right? So, oh, and I, I think that it was just, I was like, well, this worked before with my previous books. It has to work now. Why isn't it working? Everything's broken. Everything's a mess. I'm a terrible writer. I should give up. Like, that's where mm. I went. You know, like I, le- I led myself to that place. And I think what I learned from this is I really have to take a look at each novel and see how it's because everyone is its own thing. Like, I don't write books that are the same characters or the same worlds or anything. So it's really starting like from like a very, very fresh blank page. And so I need to just really step back and try and think about what would be the best attainable goals for finishing the first draft of this book in a way that would be the most helpful for this particular story. And so in terms of structuring the book, um, I now I'm looking at my new book and I'm, I'm doing a, l- a lot more um, thinking and digesting and, and exploring than I normally do. 
and I'm not pressuring myself to have it fully realized and understood on the page right away because I learned that that didn't go as well as last time. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm coming at it in, in a different, more organic way. Um, but I'm hoping that there will come a time with this book when it will let me plan it and outline it. I just haven't found that moment yet. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess what I've learned is that I have to kind of start fresh each time. And even when I think I know what I'm doing from the last book, it really is a new book is its own thing and it may not work and it's okay. It's okay to do something different. It's okay to, to not know what you're doing and to be learning it as you go. It's okay. So good. Thank you, Nova. Okay, next one is from Fernanda de Avila. She is very excited. She says your book comes out on her birthday. She wrote that in all caps. Happy birthday. Oh, that's so sweet. And she said also she would love to know more about Foreshadow, your amazing project with Emily XR Pan. I am so excited that that was aft. Okay, so, so Foreshadow, a serial YA anthology. You can find it at foreshadowya.com. So Emily XR Pan, who, by the way, I hope all your listeners, I know she was a guest on your show, so I hope everyone has read the amazingly beautiful The Astonishing Color of After. I love her book so much. Yeah, she spoke so highly about you and how you helped her too. I just, I love her work. And I just, you know, I, I first, we first connected over her work. I read her work before I'd ever met her oh, wow. um, in a, you know, early version of the manuscript. And I just was completely taken. I just had that, that moment, that like light bulb moment of just who is this person who could create something so beautiful? I have to meet them like that kind of, so I love, I love her writing and we, you know, we met and we have like, you know, bonded over writing. We have very similar tastes. So if there's something that Emily loves, there's a good chance I'll love it and vice versa. (laughs) So we realized that we had very similar tastes and we realized we also had this dream to, you know, publish what we thought was going to be a literary magazine for young adult short stories and that this was both something that we wanted. And when we realized that, like the, the, the meeting of the fact that we both shared the same taste and we both had the same dream, it was like, let's do this together. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's fate. Happen. Yeah, it was fated. Um, I remember we had a conversation on an Amtrak train on the way to the AWP conference where I remember thinking, oh my God, I have to get her to do this with me. How can I convince her? You know, just like it was so, so we, we just had this like very kind of magical connection where it was something that we both wanted and we have been working for, it's been about a year where we've been secretly working. And then we, now we have a staff of about 25 people and we've been putting together this project that has become what we're calling it a serial anthology because for one year for the year of 2019 once a month we'll be publishing three YA short stories and those short stories will be from writers you may know but also brand new new voices who haven't published before Mm, and our mission our mission really for foreshadow is to really highlight marginalized writers to you know to advocate for, you know, underrepresented voices and to really, you know, showcase emerging writers in a place that really has hasn't existed in YA so much. There isn't there aren't very many places where unpublished writers can publish YA short stories and and get seen, right? Mm-hmm. So this is just something that we felt really passionate about and it's actually happening. We you're talking to me on the day that you know last night around midnight we actually hit 100% on our, <gasps> our 
our fundraising minimum goal for making foreshadow happen. Oh my so gosh. Congratulations. Actually, oh, thank you. So <gasps> now we're working on the stretch goal. Like we have big goals, but we're, you know, it's actually real. Like I am sitting here this morning. I, I was thinking that like, we made this happen. This is really happening. Emily, if you're listening, it's happening. Like we're just so, um, so we have our first issue up at issue zero with three stellar YA short stories at foreshadowya.com. For all the writers out there, our submissions are open. We have two upcoming deadlines, September 1st, which um, may, not, may be, you know, after this podcast, you know, before this podcast comes out. But we also have another deadline, November 1st, when we're looking for short stories. So please take a look. Please send us your YA short stories of all genres. And we're especially hoping to find, you know, stories by marginalized writers. And we hope that you'll consider us for your work. Oh, I love that. Congratulations, Nova and Emily. I'm so excited for you. We're so excited. We can't wait to share all the stories with the world. We have so many stories that you don't even know about that we've been reading that are just brilliant and beautiful and can't wait to start publishing them in 2019. Oh, that's so exciting. Seriously, congratulations. And that's also a lot of work and time too. So um, incredible, incredible. Very happy for you both. Thank you. And the next and final question is from Charlotte Martin. She wrote, Nova, she used to be a regular at the coffee shop where I barista'd one of the loveliest people oh my of- Oh Charlotte, <laughs> Oh, she said, one of the loveliest people of all time, a staff favorite, no questions asked. My question is, how has moving to a new city changed your writing if it has changed your writing? And what's related is, has the rise of the internet and general connectedness made it easier to to be in the publishing community without being in its hub, example, New York City. As someone who also just left New York City for less concrete pastures, I'd love to know her opinion. Oh, Charlotte. Hi. Hi, Charlotte. I love her. Um, and I love the, the coffee shop where I, I don't know if she wants me to say, so I won't say, but it was my regular coffee shop in New York. And it's one of the things I miss a lot having left. You know, it was it was my place. They knew me. They were so wonderful and creative. Mm. There were so many creative artists who worked there. So I, you know, so the question about how has my writing been going since I left? I mean, let's be really honest. It was a, it was a huge upheaval. Like it was, you know, moving, I had been in that apartment for 16 years, right? It was everything I knew. And so it has been kind of hard to find my new routine here in this new place. The good thing is that I have here in Philly, I have my own room to write in. I've never had that before. I have my own home office, which is just, uh, sometimes I just like stand in there like this isn't, I have a room. It's just, you know, perplexing and exciting to me. So I have space and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm finding my way, but it has been really difficult to just like get through such a giant move and also the publishing of a new book and write. And I'm, I'm feel like I'm just starting to get my feet. You know, I'm just starting to find the cafes in my new city and to to find my new routine and to see like what might come out of me now that I'm no longer in the place that I knew. I feel like something 
you know, really amazing could come of this. Like, I don't know what my, what my next books and stories might be because I'm now in this new place where all these new experiences could come to me that I wouldn't have had before. And I'm so excited to see how that might change the, you know, who I am on the page and the kind of stories that I tell. So I feel like I'm poised at the moment where I can't fully answer Charlotte's question, but like I'm in it and I'm experiencing it and I'm excited about what's next. And then about being outside New York and being online and having that connection. I mean, there's a part of me, I will, I will admit that I worried a lot about leaving New York and if it would affect how it was for me with, you know, publishing books, because, you know, I could go to events more easily. I, I, I lived downtown in New York. I lived about a seven minute walk from my publisher's office. So if they needed something, I could just go. Yeah, I could just go and like do something. So for example, a couple of weeks ago, they wanted me to sign books, but I wasn't in the city and I couldn't do it. And I, I thought, I thought, oh my, I, I never should have left New York. How could this have been? But then I'm like, you know what? If they really needed me to sign the books, they I could have taken the train in or they could have shipped me to them, shipped me the books, right? It's you don't need to be there physically. So I'm I'm in that part where I'm realizing, oh, I don't really need to be there. And what's what's different is that I have, you know, a bit of a separation in my mind and I have more of a like a calmness in my heart now. And I think it was just a lot of, you know, there's a lot of the frenzy and the competition of being in New York that is very exciting for a time, but there comes a point when maybe it's not the healthiest thing for you. And I think I was getting to that point. So I think mentally, it's going to be a better thing for me to not be there for a while. I don't know if it's permanent, but it's certainly what I need right now. And I also, you know, I am just as connected online with everyone. I don't think a lot of people don't didn't even know that I'm no longer there. Like, honestly, they can't even tell. I'm like, you know, it's in my bio that I moved to Philly. <laughs> I'm not in New York anymore. But I think, I think, you know, I, it's, it's just we're all so connected. And publishing is really um, a lot of it can be done online. And, and certainly working with your editor, working with an agent, you don't need to be in the same place. So I don't think anyone should worry that if they're not in New York, it's not possible. It is absolutely possible. I feel like it's so much more possible now. And I feel, um, you know, the connections are alive and we're bringing in voices that aren't all from New York City, which is a good thing. You know, it shouldn't all be about New York, even though I love it so much. It shouldn't. We can't be. It's impossible. That's so helpful because of the money conversation we were having. How can anyone really survive without being stressed out, specifically as creatives, as writers? So this also helps people know there are other options where you can have a peace of mind and enjoy doing your work, uh, still be able to be connected and everything you summed it up beautifully. And that helps so many people because we have also a lot of Uh, listeners who are in the midst of moving to different places. So I'm sure this also gives them a peace of mind as well. Okay, Nova, that was amazing. Mm -hmm. And if you don't mind, I'm going to just slip in two more questions, which is what are you most excited about right now? Most excited about foreshadow happening. I mean, just because it just happened. I'm just so excited that something that I'd been dreaming about and thinking was impossible actually is coming to fruition. And I think part of the excitement of it is that there was a long time where I wanted to do this and I was just on my own with the idea, you know, like it was only myself and it felt like I'm never going to be able to do that. But the magic part of it was finding someone to do it with. 
you know, a friend to do it with me. And that like, it tells me like, you know, if there's anyone out there who has like a dream project or something that like, you've always wanted to do that you keep putting off, maybe, first of all, maybe this is the moment to do it. But also, maybe there's someone out there who also wants something similar, and you can connect and do it together and actually make it real. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. so that that's the thing that I'm most excited about that it actually is happening after all this wanting yeah so excited for you oh my gosh okay so now the last final question what's a favorite craft book that you can recommend for our listeners to check out or any kind of book that left a huge impact on you and your writing oh my goodness I'm like right now trying to remember the name of this craft book that is the one that I love so let's see if I can find it okay um, you know it's funny like as for someone who writes so much you would think that I would be like reading craft books left and right I actually don't read that many craft books what what is that saying where they're like you know there's people who just keep learning 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 but never do the doing so you're one of those people who just do 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 which is good because there's they also say you study too much of like either you read too many craft books or or go to school back to back to back you just end up never actually doing what it is that you were trying to study yeah, for. True. So, hey, you're doing it. So that's actually a great yeah. example. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what it is, is I learn a lot from the books that I read. I learn a lot from when I, when I admire a novel, I often will reread it and think, how did they do this? But I found the book that inspires me and that I found that really spoke to me. And it's called Still Writing, The Perils and Pleasures of a Creative Life. And it's by Danny Shapiro. And there was something about it that I think just it speaks to me as a working writer and about, you know, this the daily practice of writing and just like just the everyday of doing this, the doing of it, and not so much like the outside impressions and like what we are when we're an author, but the writing part of it. And that's what I love about that book. And that's like the one, the one like craft related book that I've read multiple times. Oh, that's so yeah. good. Thank you, Nova. And just the <laughs> last final thing, let us know where to find you on social media. Yes. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as Nova Ren, N-O-V-A-R-E-N. -E and my website is NovaRen.com. And I'm there in all places. And I would love to connect. And thank you so much for having me. This was such a wonderfully deep and interesting and inspiring conversation. I feel like I'm going to carry with me beyond this. And that wraps up our episode with Nova Rensuma. Nova, thank you for being just the loveliest person ever and for being so transparent and thoughtful throughout our entire conversation. It was truly such a treat to talk with you and I feel so fulfilled from our chat and it was such a joy having you on the show. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to say hi to Nova on Twitter at Nova Ren. To access her show notes page, head over to 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Nova dash Ren dash Suma. At the top of the show, I talked about Scrivener being a champion of 88 Cups of Tea. They're a writing software that was created by writers just for writers like our community and has earned legions of loyal fans from new writers to New York Times bestselling authors alike with many of our own podcast guests and listeners who use Scrivener for their own work in progress. I love that Scrivener combines all the writing tools we have scattered across our desktop all into one single software. 
I'm definitely that person who has a thousand different windows and tabs open full of research and notes and ideas. But as soon as I discovered Scrivener, it was such a relief to have everything organized and laid out in one screen, making it so much easier to see in one glance. They provide all the tools you need to get writing and to keep writing. For example, you can view your research alongside your writing and rearranging sections or chapters of your story is a simple drag and drop. And that's barely scratching the surface of what this software is capable of providing for writers. From now till September 30th, they're giving our storytellers a special 20% discount on their regular desktop versions of Scrivener. All you have to do is type in the code 88 cups of tea at checkout. I would really love for you to try them out for yourself and see how it improves the flow and efficiency of your writing sessions and let me know how it goes. And in FYI, when you grab yourself a copy of Scrivener, you're also showing your support for 88 Cups of Tea. So you can head directly to their site at www.literatureandlatte.com slash Scrivener to grab your copy. That's literatureandlatte, L-A-T-T-E dot com slash Scrivener. And I'm so serious. Reach out to me on any social media at 88 cups of tea and let me know what you think about Scrivener. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 cups of tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.